This episode of The Ketchup is brought to you by Dean's Dairy Dip, the number one French onion dip in America, and the classic, cool, and creamy sponsor of Food Beast Kitchen League's Dean's Dip Off. We're pitting innovative chefs against Dean's Real Dippers in head-to-head recipe battles where the Dean's Dip-Off lets you join the live audience in trying to sabotage the competition. Yep, you can sabotage our contestants live, and no matter what, Dean's deliciousness stays intact. Check out the Food Beast Twitch page for the live streams, recaps, and Dean's Dip recipe videos, and look for Dean's Dip in your supermarket dairy case, because Dean's is Real Dip for Real Dippers. Welcome back, fatties. <laughs> Today we're joined by chef, author, businessman, Mr. Wolfgang Puck. He doesn't need an introduction, but it's the highlight of my week, so I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, he's the leader of hundreds of restaurants around the world. You can eat his food in grocery stores, airports, universities, casinos, hospitals, hotels, and even shopping malls. And as long as Jeff and I have been alive, Wolfgang Puck has been just a ubiquitous name in food, true, someone that we looked true. up to. Uh so a lot of food culture is stuff that we just take for granted today. An open kitchen in a restaurant, using TV and media to help build a brand. That's attributed to Wolfgang. And to make sure this conversation is balanced, we also have the prince himself, Chef Byron Puck. He's not only the son of Wolfgang, he's a graduate of Cornell. He's worked at Alinea in Chicago. He's got some boundary-pushing dishes. We, we follow him on Instagram. He's been featured on Food Beast and Food and Wine. I want him to update that IG more often. Uh, he's been in the lab working on some crazy wild food innovations we're going to get to, but, uh, I want to welcome you guys, Wolfgang, Byron, Thank welcome you. to the catch up. Thank you. Good to be with you. Welcome to the catch up. Introducing your hosts, Eli Aruth, editor in chief, and Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, news-breaking, food-porn-peddling, viral website on the dot-coms. It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy! There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. Alright, and welcome to the catch-up. First thing, Wolfgang, uh, what did you eat? What did you eat for breakfast this morning? <laughs> yeah, like, why are you so fucking curious? <laughs> <laughs> because I think a lot of people are curious of of the what an average breakfast meal might be. You for know, you. I got up in the morning. I'm not really a big eater in the morning. Me too. Me too. So I got up, have my double espresso, then I walk my son Alexander across the street to school. Then I come back and exercise for an hour because, you know, you have to stay in shape. That's yeah. really an important part. And then I sit down and I have some fruits. Or like this morning, I ran out of yogurt at home, the plain yogurt. I love plain yogurt with olive oil, black pepper, ground freshly, and a little salt. Oh so I like to eat that. Uh, and naturally, coffee is everything. You know, my wife Galila is Ethiopian. The coffee is the biggest thing there. It's a big ceremony when they do. So we have every morning somebody roasting coffee. The whole neighborhood smells like a roast coffee. <laughs> uh, the neighbors, I think, want to come to our house too to taste the coffee. And then they grind it and make coffee. So it's really an amazing flavor. So the coffee really is the main thing for me. So that's, that's your ritual. That's your morning ritual. Yeah. 
that's and a, that's then I come here and, and do radio. <laughs> I love that he flew into town just for this. Yeah. <laughs> Byron, what's your morning look like? Uh, that's so much more put together than mine. I'm the type of guy that will make like matcha or something for myself in the morning and run out of the door like shirt still half off, like still buttoning up the button. By the way, your top button is still, I like it actually. I like it. <laughs> it's working. It's working. Well, it's funny to see the dichotomy and see uh, how both of those work. So again, we talked about how we genuinely take for granted the Wolf King Puck name, the brand, and, and how important it is. And I think we'd be doing our listeners at home, our fatties, a disservice if we didn't actually, for those in their 20s and 30s, actually just heard a little bit about the history and how, how you came to be, how you found love and food growing up in Austria. Like, tell, tell us a little bit about 13, 14-year-old you real quick. Okay, well, when I was 13, 14-year-old, I had to decide what I'm going to do. I wasn't... Uh, smart enough my parents were not rich enough so i couldn't go to higher education so i stopped school when i was 14 started my apprenticeship uh at 14 got thrown out of the <laughs> hotel almost but i didn't leave i was hiding in the vegetable cellar and uh uh 10 days later the chef used to come down and uh, said oh you why you're not gone already you know I've, we fired you you have to go back home to your mother and my stepfather always told me I was good for nothing. So that's why I left so early. And I moved like 50 miles away when I was 14 years old. And, you know, at that time, we didn't have telephone at home or whatever. If I needed something, I had to write a letter to my mother. So it was a totally different time. Yet I'm not 150 years old. But, you know, not too long ago, there was no cell phone. There was no this. There was no that, you know. We didn't have uh, plumbing in the house. So the toilet was 100 meters outside. Oh, so wow. in the winter we had snow, so you went to the toilet in the afternoon and not at night. So, <laughs> so how, how did you? But then I started to cook at fourteen, and then at seventeen I moved to France, and that's where I really got, I think, my like a light bulb went off in my head. I went to this restaurant called Beaumanier in Provence, in south of France, and there a man named Raymond Tullier, who at that time was in his early seventies. But he was so passionate, and we had all these amazing customers. Like he brought Picasso into the kitchen. The Queen of England what? came there. <laughs> and uh, so it was for me, and I said, I want to be like him. And somehow he liked me because I wasn't afraid of him. All the other young kids or chefs, whoever was there, you know, when he made something, they always said, oh, it's delicious. But when, like when I made something and he tasted it and said, oh, okay, put a little salt and pepper. And I said, when he made something, he said, taste it. I said, ah. I would put a little more salt and pepper in it. <laughs> or a little lemon juice. Yeah. And he said, okay. <laughs> and he liked it because he knew I was thinking. I wasn't some ye, uh, uh, yes, yes man. Say, yes yeah. man. Yeah. So then when I was 19 years old, when he went on vacation for a few days, he told the executive chef, he said, you know, Wolfgang has to be here every day when I'm gone. And wow. Do the, and do the sauces. So, and then I went to Maxime's in Paris. I learned even more about traditional modern French cooking. And then I came to the United States and worked one year in Indianapolis. Then I came here to LA and uh, worked uh, at Ma Maison, became a partner in the restaurant. And in 1982, I opened Spargo. Can we can we backtrack to yeah, this, tell us? Can you tell us a bit more about what the European kitchens that you were in were like? Because I think a majority of our audience may not have had the chance to experience that type of dining, especially in yeah. France. 
Tell us about what you were doing in those kitchens and, and what those kitchens oh, were. Like. It was a total different uh, atmosphere, I would say, than it's now. You know, if you were cooking like on the stove, making something, something wasn't right, the chef came behind you and gave you a big kick in the butt okay. or hit you on the back of the head <laughs> or in the throat. I mean, it was very physical. Or they threw things. They saw, see you doing something and bang, and you have to, things were flying in the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds like you're uh, 17, 19. That's a stressful environment, Oh, it was it? very stressful. And I became similar to that. Huh. I remember Mr. Tullier had another restaurant and he sent me there when I was 19 or 20 to be the chef. And I had four French guys. And then his uh, nephew was running that restaurant. He was married at that time and everything. And so I got into a fight with them. And then uh, I said, you can't come in the kitchen anymore. One day he came in the kitchen. I had a pile of plates. I just slammed <laughs> them on the floor and said, get out of my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned it that way, so which was really a crazy way when you think, you know, in between the dining room and the kitchen was always a fight. You know, I remember in Austria, the chef used to heat up a plate, like put it in the oven and then uh, put a little thing on it and give it to the waiter like that and says, oh, put that in the dishwasher. And the waiter grabbed it and went like, <laughs> I mean, it, it was totally, totally crazy. Was was. The kitchen similar when you came into New York were how similar or dissimilar were the kitchens in the U.S. in comparison to what you were experiencing in France and I really Europe? I really thought in France because of these uh, stars in the Guide Michelin and everything everybody was so uptight okay. about everything and people used to scream and yell all day long. So when you're really not young, you know it's a very difficult thing. When yeah. I was fourteen, fifteen in Austria, it was the same. The chef there was half of the time drunk, so he did not uh, know probably what he was saying. So it was really a crazy environment. You know, obviously in the kitchen, there's a lot of pressure. You know, when you get an order in, if uh, you call your carpenter or the guy who lays your carpet or whatever it is, you know, they don't finish it today, they come back tomorrow. Yeah. With the, the food. You send out the appetizer, 20 minutes later, you better send out the main course. You cannot say, okay, in two hours, I'm going to give you the main course. So there are, and there are so many orders, so many tables. They all come in at the same time, and then you have to get the food out. So there's this time pressure, which really makes it a little crazy. Could you ever have a kitchen that isn't that stressful? I love stress, and I love, to <laughs> See, do, <laughs> I love things to do in the last moment. I don't want to have too much structure, because it inhibits innovation, it, it, you get stuck. So I think to find the right medium between structure and chaos, mm. it's really, if it's too chaotic, it's not good. But you create chaos in a way by not letting people do the same thing over and over again, by saying, no, let's change this, let's do that. And all of a sudden people run around and uh, say, what the fuck do we have to change again? <laughs> Well, we, we jump from you being 13, leaving the house, 
to you know which is crazy by the way uh, yeah thinking about a 14 year old version of jeff leaving the house and being i mean imagine your own. son byron leaving the house would you let him out at 13 to go oh, i would have sent him away for sure <laughs> <laughs> that does not the mother probably would have felt so differently and i have now a 14 year old boy at home and i was thinking oh my god I told him, Oliver, you can't even keep your room clean. When I was out, I had to go to work, keep my room clean, brush my teeth, and take a shower once in a while. I mean, Byron, when you hear that your dad, like at 13 and 14, had to, for whatever reason, had to leave the house, I mean, do you, are you like, shit, how, is it a different, was that a different time? Is it a different person? Is it, you know, we think about that. My parents tell me that all the time. When I was your age, when I was 13 and 14, like I was working two jobs. I was playing Nintendo, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was totally a different time, but it's it's mainly inspiring, if anything at all. Like, it's unbelievable to just take everything you have, pack up and leave at that age. I could never really imagine doing that. That being said, though, you also put me to work pretty early at Spago, washing dishes and helping out in the back. So About time, though. Huh? Yeah, but I was still in my <laughs> Cause city. Because I say I anything, anything like eight hours is a part-time job. I tell everybody 12 hours only half a day. Yeah, I, I hear that. Yeah, <laughs> I hear that. Um, so you land in New York. Are you are you rich yet? What's what's going on? Do you have money? How do you find your first gig in New well, York? I arrived in New York. I had a job in New York lined up. I didn't really like it, and then I went to this restaurant called La Goulou, and the owner Charles Mason, who passed away a while ago, he found me this job in Indianapolis, and because I used to live in Monaco, and they have the big auto race there. The Grand Prix in yeah. Monaco is the biggest event in auto racing. Yeah. And so are the 500 miles in Indianapolis. Yeah. So somebody offered me a job in Indianapolis and I said, I'm going. Yeah, but I had no more money basically to go. So I scrapped enough money together to go to the Greyhound station. And I took the Greyhound bus from uh, uh, Manhattan to Indianapolis. And it took like a day and a half to get there or something <laughs> like that. I remember it was over, an overnight trip. And each time I woke up and said, shit, are we there yet? <laughs> how, how much did you know about that job in Indianapolis before you took before, uh, I took, uh, before you took a Greyhound bus with no money in your pocket yeah. to the middle of America, which is going to be a very different place you than New, New York, York and yeah. Europe. Yeah. So how much did you know about the place, the job, or what you were well, walking into? I knew about the job there because it was a French restaurant called La Tour. So, and then I said, okay, cannot be that all bad if they won't have a French restaurant. That was one thing. But I told the manager of the company there, they had more than one restaurant. I said, you know, I don't cook hot dogs and hamburgers. If that you forget about it. If you want me to do that, I'm not going. So I told him from New York, he says, no, no, we are a French restaurant. We have sweetbreads on the menu. We have canal orange and we have all these things on the menu. I said, okay, I'm coming then. So I think then when I went there, it was a very nice, elegant restaurant because the president of the Indiana National Bank he was a very Francophile. He loved good wines and he loved to go to this fancy restaurant like La Dorogeon and Maxime's and he knew all these three-star restaurants in France. And so he wanted to create one like that in Indianapolis. Now, he got the same furniture and the same uh, furnishing and the same plates maybe, but the people didn't know how to cut a steak or eat mm -hmm. with the knife and the oh. fork. You know, they used to hold the knife in one hand, the fork in the other, cut everything in pieces like that and then put the knife down and eat with the right hand with the fork. Or 
I think I cooked more steak well done in Indianapolis oh, in one year than the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had an Irish, I had an Irish grill guy there. I was the chef in the restaurant for dinner, yeah, dinner time. And the Irish guy said, no, no, just nuke him, put him in the microwave <laughs> so there's no blood after. <laughs> and I said, I cannot do that. Let's give them a little pink, it's okay. Turn down the lights in the dining room so they can see it. <laughs> So what what gets you to California eventually? Because it sounds like you didn't love New York, you know, initially yeah. jumping in there. And and I think it's a it's a very contrasting difference between New York, West Coast, East Coast things. And you essentially end up embodying a lot of what we now know as yeah. the West Coast cuisine, California cuisine. So what, what led you to California then? Well, it was an interesting experience. Already when I was in Austria, I heard about the hippies and when I was in <laughs> France and, you know, then you hear about San Francisco, the hippies in the street, smoking uh, dope and uh, <laughs> having sex uh, outside. And everything. I said, I have to come and visit that, you know, I, I want to experience that. Too. <laughs> so I said, I want to go to... Uh, uh, California to San Francisco or Los Angeles because they also offered me a job in Chicago. I said, no, no, forget about Chicago. I want to get a different experience. I, so, did, I did not know that was the reason. <laughs> the, the reason for you. Like, this is say, why I was born in LA. It's all based on that. We're going to share, we'll, we'll share weed stories. If you share one, I share one. <laughs> it's tied to your restaurant. So anyways, go ahead. Yeah, now it's legal. So now it's, it wouldn't yeah. be such a big deal anymore. No, not at all. I said, oh, you go to the pharmacy and get it. So it's easy. <laughs> what was the, what was the first job in LA, Wolfgang? So I had a job downtown uh, in a restaurant called Francois, which was the same company who ran their restaurant in Indianapolis. And I started there, but I wasn't happy. It was like really boring. The manager wrote the menu. And then I found uh, while I was working there, I said, I want to open my own restaurant. So I have to work more. I cannot just work from three to 11. You know, I have mornings free. So then through somebody I met, they said, you know, I know this little restaurant on Melrose Avenue called Ma Maison. I, the chef over there needs somebody maybe to work a few mornings and do lunch there. I said, okay. I went there. It was a terrible little restaurant with uh, homemade refrigerators outside in the alley. So that we had no walk-in refrigerator, nothing. So I started to work there at 8 in the morning at, until 2.30, 2, 2.30, and then I took the, my car downtown and worked from 3 to 11. So I basically worked, you know, all day. Yeah, 15 hours a day. Yeah. But my dream at that time was always to open my own restaurant. That's why I said, I said, if I can spend the money I make in the morning and save all the rest, and I said, you know, if I have $30,000 at that time, I'm going to open a restaurant. I don't care if we have plastic tables or whatever. As long as we have a good stove, I can go and buy good ingredients and yeah. make good food. During this time, where would you say your your brand and your notoriety is? I mean, you've jumped, you know, from Europe well, to here. Was um, it there yet? America was really a wasteland for food, mostly. Hmm. For ingredients. There was no goat cheese. There was no fresh basil. You couldn't get what you get today in the supermarket. So that all trickled down from a few restaurants at that time, really. Uh, it was so different. You know, there was no farmer's market like in a place like LA. Yeah. And so it was totally different. I remember when I put goat cheese on a pizza uh, at Marvin and Barbara Davis's house, I made pizzas for them, they loved. And then we had goat cheese on it and she said, oh my God, who put 
go chase out my pizza. This is the worst thing I ever had in my life. She almost threw it down from the second story. It was crazy. I mean, people didn't know. Yeah. You know, they had no agree. I went down to the Chino farm. I brought strawberries, which were dark red and so good. And I remember Johnny Carlson coming to me and says, Wolfgang, where you get these strawberries? Oh my God, I never saw such a thing. I said, well, I'm going to the farm two and a half hours south from here in San Diego, and they have the best vegetables and the best tomatoes, the best white corn. So I started to get great products already. You were almost like building a chef culture here before, because we take that for granted. Oh, totally. Th- Everything is for granted. Now people don't know that the tomatoes, when I came here, were the same as in the supermarket. They were the same in July or in January. You know, everything was made that way. Zucchinis, if you went to the big produce market in downtown LA, and you know, the zucchinis, they all measured 18 inches long, three inches in diameter, and they were in a nice box. Yeah, they all look the same. But no flavor. Yeah. The same thing with the tomatoes, the same thing with a lot of vegetables. So no wonder you couldn't cook that great food, you know, because cooking starts with great ingredients. When when did you start transitioning from the two jobs into uh, more of uh, the sole position at Ma- Maison? Yeah. Well, the chef, it was an interesting experience because they had a chef there who was, to, in my opinion, at least terrible. You know, he, <laughs> so, and we had no business basically. Mm. So then when I started to cook for lunch there and all of a sudden people came into the kitchen and even the kitchen was really lousy, shitty. I, they came in and said, oh my God, how, how did you make that? The food is so good. Like the chef who was there, a French guy too, he made mashed potatoes, but he used this powder thing out of the can, mm, Wow! poured water to a boil, put that in, and maybe a little cream at the end. That's it. I mean, we have more potatoes in America than, than, except Ireland probably who has more. But, you know, so everything was done that way. So nothing was fresh, nothing was good. And then uh, I just made it. I went to the fish market because I was interested in it. So I went to the fish market, bought the fish because everything was on COD there because they couldn't pay the bills most of the time. <laughs> and so I bought some fish. I bought some lobster shells, for example, just to make a, a lobster sauce. Like I remember there was a famous restaurant called Scandia here. They bought lobster meat for their lobster cocktail. I got the shells, so I had to make something <laughs> out of the shells. And so I bought them for $5. I could make enough sauce or soup for a whole day. So yeah. it was really an interesting time. And because of my experience in these really upscale restaurants in France, I think I made really good food and not too expensive. And I didn't have too many ingredients. The menu was small, but people start to like it. And people used to come in the kitchen. I still remember one day when Ali McGraw, Ali you know, was in Love Story. And I was a kid when I saw the movie. I was totally in love with her. She comes in the kitchen and said, where's Wolfgang? I said, oh, my God, my heart started to pump. I said, what, what are I going to do with her? You know, <laughs> She's coming to look for me. So to Eli, your earlier question, it sounds like your personal brand reputation as a chef has really starts to solidify with an outward LA public at Mamazon. Does, yeah. does that sound right? At Mamazon, where it really puts me on the map that way. I stayed there over five and a half years or six years. And, you know, I became friends with Orson Welles. I became friends with Billy Wilder and all these Hollywood people at that time. So it was really a very interesting experience, you know, to see all these people coming to the restaurant. 
yet we started out really poorly. I remember when I got my first paycheck, I went uh, uh, a block away to the bank to cash it, and they said, sorry, there's no money. Oh, shit. The restaurant had no money. So I went back and talked to Patrick, who was the owner, and I said, Patrick, I went to the bank, there's no money. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, we have no money. And then I made a deal with him. I said, okay, you can pay me a little less, but uh, give me part of the restaurant. So he gave me 10% of the restaurant and uh, uh, I started to work. And six months later, we went from uh, $18,000 a month to $50,000 a month, which was an amazing improvement. You know, all of a sudden, I could buy a whole lobster too with uh, with the meat inside. <laughs> was that your first? Was that your first business power move? You feel like well, I think it, it, it was almost out of necessity, necessity because I kept I I I left my job downtown, so then I had this was the only job I had. So I was the mm-hmm. chef for lunch and dinner there, and so I said, you know, something have to happen. But I could see there was possibilities because I said. I'm actually surprised that they are open with the food they were serving. I mean, it was terrible. Yeah. And today, these days, people know way too much. You couldn't even start like that, you know? So what was the possibility, though? If it was such trash and some of the people there were like, eh, you're not really a fan of, what What was it keeping you there? Was it just the structure that this is a restaurant? I, I don't liked, have to start it from I scratch? I liked the part because I was in complete control. Mm-hmm. Nobody could tell me what to do. For example, downtown at Francois, the chef came one day and wrote a whole menu. He said, this is our spring summer menu and gave it to me. I said, what the fuck, you're writing my menu. And so I got into an argument. I said, you know what, at the end, you just cook it. I gave him my apron and I walked out. This was the manager versus you being the chef, right? Yeah, I was the chef and he was the restaurant manager. And he's Not telling- the ma- ma- He was the manager of... Francois had a few places in the Arco Plaza downtown. Now it's called the City National Bank building down there. And so they had like uh, an Irish pub. They had a few other places. So he was the general manager overseeing three or four places in there. And he's a German guy and he thought he knew everything, you know. (laughs) And uh, so when he wrote this menu and he asked me a question, I said, are you out of your mind or what? Why do you do that? You didn't even consult with me. You didn't even ask me. And that, I think, I could not take. I finally, yeah. I just said, here's my apron. You go and cook it, too. If you write the menu, you know how to cook it. Go right ahead. Yeah. And so I walked, and then I started at Ma Maison lunch and dinner at that time. Oh, that, they didn't have lunch yet, so you opened up the yeah. lunch. That started taking off, lunch and that's and where the money yeah. started coming in. Yeah. At what, at what point are you kind of reaching a breaking point at Ma Maison and deciding? I, I, we know... You've already talked about you had a drive for your own restaurant. At Food Beast, we talk with a lot of chefs, and there are a lot of chefs who have investors and business partners, and at some point, they don't see eye to eye, and they they kind of break free from that relationship. What what happened at Mamazon, and what kind of uh, turned into your restaurant? You know, it was an interesting thing for me. Patrick never trusted me with the money somehow. Hmm. So I was his partner, and... Like when he went on vacation, he had, they made a deal or the dining room manager signed the checks. And wow. I said, something is not right. If he is my partner, I do 70% of the revenue comes from the food and he doesn't trust me. Mm-hmm. And I took the business from $18,000 to $50,000. And obviously then it kept on going to $350,000 by the time I left. So it was a weird 
thing, I think, to think that way, you know, that I felt like I wasn't important. Mm. And he pushed me always on the side. Like, uh, I remember in the old time, they had like Dinah Shore, you know, she had a TV show on. Yeah. And she was quite famous at that time. And like, she came to the restaurant often and uh, she talked to Patrick and said, Patrick, why we don't, can Wolfgang come on the show? And he just told her, no, no, no. Wolfgang doesn't do TV, I do TV. So one day, one day, we, <laughs> yeah, one day we do a dinner, a wine dinner, and she came uh, with uh, the people from Chateau Mouton, Baron uh, Philip was there, Filipina's wife, and like big, important people. And then I, they asked me to sit down with them because they loved the food so much. And then Dinah tells me, Wolfgang, how come you have such a nice personality? Why you don't want to do and come and cook with me on TV? She said, you know, I play golf, but I like cooking too. And I said, well, you never ask. And she looks at me and says, Patrick, that son of a bitch said you don't want to do TV. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Okay. He's shelving you. Yeah, totally. Like when we did, uh, we were supposed to get the cover of LA Magazine. And uh, they were coming to shoot. And then Patrick told me, oh, you know what? I just got this deal in Maui. Uh, in, yeah, in Maui to, in a hotel. You want to go for a week to... Shut up. He uh, shipped you to Hawaii he so he can take the front cover? <laughs> yeah. So him and Orson Welles oh, kept the front wow. cover. Wow. Is, is this guy still alive and around? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he is in, in uh, an hour outside of Atlanta in a little town now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Get <right>. some, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. So when... That's, that's, that's insane. R- so, that's crazy. So I get the animosity leaving there. And yeah. then what gives you the, the final courage or whatever you need to open up Spago? You know, I always wanted to have my own place. And then as I lived here longer in LA, I felt like uh, California is like Provence, like uh, part of Italy, south of France, the climate and everything, you know? So then I said, okay, I'm going to open a restaurant. And I'm going to build an open kitchen. Hmm. Why? Because I want to see the whole restaurant. I said, that way I can manage the kitchen and the dining room. It was such a simple philosophy in a way for me. You know, I said, I'm going to build a kitchen outside. Now, there were open kitchens like in the diner. You know, they made the hamburgers right in front of you yeah. and things like that. But there was no white tablecloth restaurant with an open kitchen. And I said, you know, we buy the best ingredients and then... We hopefully don't fuck them up. We do them right. <laughs> it's and so it's so obvious now. I know, but everything is obvious, you know. After after somebody did it, right. you know. Right. And uh, I think uh, uh, so when we built it, and uh, uh, Byron's mom decorated it and uh, did a great job doing the restaurant with very little money. I raised five hundred thousand dollars. We built a restaurant for $500,000. And naturally, I could not sleep at night. I said, nobody's going to show up. And Which is a lot of, which is a lot of money lot now, of let money. alone a, a lot of money back then. then. Yeah, no, totally. So, but I think the first day when the restaurant opened, I was cooking and cooking. I invited some people and all of a sudden I looked up and said, oh shit, the restaurant is packed. There's not an empty table. And I said, Day I don't one. know. And uh, we only prepped for that much, you know? <laughs> so I remember we had this beautiful pick plates. That's when they, that right around that time, it's when uh, a few people like Bernardo and Villain Park started making big, elegant plates for restaurants. And uh, 
uh, as the night went on, I started to get smaller and smaller plates. I took them for the main course because I didn't have vegetables anymore. I didn't have this anymore, but I had to serve the people. So what we did though, uh, give everybody great desserts. Nancy Silverton, who is a very famous yeah. chef yeah. and pastry chef. So she was the pastry chef. What's your first job as a pastry chef? And so I said, Nancy, just fix them a big platter of desserts at the end. I know they were pitching. They had to wait for the table, for the food and everything. But then this big platter with 10 desserts and it came to the table. They looked at it and said, ah, oh, that's fabulous. It's amazing, you know. And so we saved a lot of uh, customers that way, you know, by being generous. And I tell people today, we have to be generous. You know, we have to give people to get something back. And so that was already in my mind then, you know, not to be cheap with the customers because you want the customer to have a great experience. So even if something fucks up once in a while, you get a great experience if you finish it the right way. There's a there's a rumor that um, the menu for Spago wasn't developed until what, 24 hours exactly. until you opened? Yeah. That's exactly how he works day in, day <laughs> yeah. out. It's all about pressure and last second. This yeah. is this is the $500,000 restaurant with the yeah. business and exec chef and management in your name. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't, ima I can't imagine what, so walk us through okay, so, why that happened. So what I did, I went with Mark Peel, who was the chef and yeah. he was married to Nancy. And uh, we went to the fish market where all my Japanese friends used to, I used to have a few uh, Japanese chefs who were friends of mine. And I knew where they went to buy their tuna and everything. So I went there, I bought the fish there, paid cash for it at the beginning. And then the old Japanese man, Frank, I, I told him, you know, you have to send me a bill. I don't have cash. So little by little, I weaned him off paying cash. <laughs> But the first day I just went and said, oh, we got some great rockfish. We got some beautiful tuna. We got this. So, and then I wrote the menu. I said, okay, we're going to have a tuna sashimi. That didn't exist in a, a Caucasian restaurant, right. French restaurant, yeah. Italian restaurant, whatever. They didn't serve raw fish. You had to go to a Japanese restaurant. But I made it a little California style. So I made a little salad in the center of the place with a little avocado, a little sweet onions. And then I fanned the tuna around, put a little... Uh, caviar on top, mm -hmm. and then made a little dressing out of soy sauce, lime juice, drizzled a little olive oil on it, and that was my tuna sashimi. And people oh, loved it. Or we started to make pizzas, so the pizzas had to be different, you know? So I said, I'm not gonna make another margarita pizza. There are a million uh, Italian restaurants who do that already. I have to make my own. Or pepperoni pizza. So instead of making pepperonis or buying them, I made duck sausage because I love duck. So I used the duck leg, flattened it out and filled it with duck force meat, rolled it and cooked it really slow in the oven and sliced it really thin and put that on the pizza. And Linda Evans used to come two times a week to have her light beer and the duck sausage pizza. So things changed from someone earlier on you mentioning being disgusted that there was something on their on their that cheese on the pizza yeah. versus now. Do people just have a trust at this point? I think, I think they somehow trusted me. But... At the end, it's all about the taste. Mm. They said, okay, it's pizza. When I told them I'm going to make pizza, but not traditional, you know, no tomato sauce on it, no stuff like that. Yeah. I went and got fresh uh, shrimps from Santa Barbara. You know, they were still alive. I just blanched them for 30 seconds, put the, took the shelf off and put a few shrimps on it with a little pesto and a little Parmesan cheese. It's really simple. And people said, wow, it tastes good. 
That's incredible. I mean, what's crazy is what you're describing is what's very hyped in restaurants right now, right? The daily menus, the we print the menus every day. We look at the ingredients from yeah. a sourcing perspective. And yeah, you might have had something three weeks ago that isn't on the menu today because we've completely adapted from that menu and that's in the past and today is today. That's happening in 1982 in Los Angeles. Yeah. Like think about thinking about that, like the cycles of of again how that's popular now, but a chef being able to think about that three decades or more ahead of yeah, when that actually had almost ago, yeah. four decades before a, yeah. a, a zeitgeist moment that we're having right now that's pretty mind-blowing you me. see any copycats back then <laughs> was anyone just like uh, open up, oh shit wolfgang's doing this like I, I could probably do that you know a lot of people said but it took a while for people to catch on so all of a sudden i remember ruth Rahel wrote a whole article the spagoization of america where every restaurant needed an open kitchen, where every restaurant needed a pizza oven, where restaurants like started to mix Italian, French a little together, keep it simple, or have a wood-burning grill. We had a wood-burning grill and a wood-burning oven. So, so it worked. I've yeah. seen a lot of places also that have Spago-esque names next yeah. to them. So like Spago in Beverly Hills here, right next door, we had a restaurant for a while that was not ours at all, but it was named Spaghettini. Ooh. which is no longer there anymore. So I think there's other ones in the Valley too that have a play off of that name yeah. also. That's, that's why, how does it feel to just see your work kind of reverberate in waves, you know? And for decades, I mean, we talk about a restaurant opening up and having a life cycle of six months. Like yeah. that's like an average restaurant. So it's a hard business, but the longevity and the end. I mean, the way you look and talk about food right now is as if you just found out about food, which yeah. is freaking crazy. Yeah. You know, you know, it is so interesting, like the impact Spago had. And, you know, we opened many other restaurants and maybe Spago and Chinois had the most impact on how we eat in America today. With Spago, for sure, I remember I was in Houston in the mid-80s. Spago was open for two, three years, and I did consulting for the Hunt family. They had a hotel in Houston. And I went, I don't know, in the Rice Village or something like that, and I look, a restaurant had my menu cover. I designed the menu. <laughs> they had my menu cover in the window, but with a different name. I think it was Prego or something like that. <laughs> I said, what the heck is going on? The guy came to the restaurant and uh, at the end took my menu home, copied it and just changed the name with the same three, four dishes on it with this, my writing and everything. So naturally I went in, I said, okay, I'm going to taste the food and I taste it. it was not that good. And then I asked the manager, can I take a menu? I love your menu. The guy said, <laughs> no, 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 we cannot sell it. We cannot give it away. This is only for us here. We want nobody to imitate us. <laughs> <laughs> how how ironic. How, how, uh, how did you handle television and media during this? Because you started gaining your notoriety around LA. I think being in LA did that for you. You Tinseltown. had, you had yeah. tons of celebrities that frequented your spots. And we'll talk about how some of them like uh, fundamentally changed the business for you too. But at what point does TV and stuff like that become important? Well, I really started to do TV in an interesting way. I did some local TV after, you know, like Dinosaur or our magazine and a few of them, which were local, which were guests also at Spargo. And then the biggest thing came in uh, 95 or 96. 
Michael Obitz, who was then running CAA, he was like the most powerful person here in Hollywood. And he came with his wife and another couple, they come to the restaurant and my second book came out and I gave him my cookbook or to his wife, Judy, actually for her birthday. And he looks at me and said, how come I don't know about that? I said, Mike, you are the busiest person in town. You have all these famous clients and everything. And uh, how should you know about the cookbook? I said, you didn't promote it. I don't see it on TV. I didn't see it anymore. So I said, I told him, you know, we tried my, the book publicist tried to get me on the Today Show or on Good Morning America and things like that. But they said, no, Good Morning America said they had Julia Charles. They don't need me. Mm. And he said, what? Are they crazy? He said, I will call them tomorrow. He <laughs> called up the guy at, at Good Morning America the next day. Two days later, one of the vice, pres vice presidents came out. To I talked to him, fed him dinner. And he said, when you want to come on TV, just call. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was your first major TV appearance that you think affected your business? In, in a huge well, way? I think it was really Good Morning America. was really the first one. At that time, was David Hartman and uh, Joan London, you know, the two hosts there. I think that was the first one. And then David Letterman had a late show, mm -hmm. you know, after uh, uh, Johnny after Carson, Johnny. after yeah. Johnny, yeah. So I, when I was in New York, they saw me on Good Morning America and Morty, who was the producer for uh, David, he was a customer already at Spago too. Not, I didn't know David Letterman. So then he used to call me up. I remember one day I had lunch at Le Cirque and they called me, they called me on their phone, but there was no cell phone. You know, they said, oh, Wolfgang, uh, somebody is on the phone from the David Letterman show. And he said, oh, can you, and Morty said, can you come over? We have somebody canceled that. You want to come and uh, do the show? I said, okay. Yeah. So I said, that way I'll stay an extra day in New York, an extra night, and I can go with my friends for dinner. And uh, so then I went to the show, and I still remember one of the first ones. I said, I panicked. I said, it's two in the afternoon, and they tape at six or at seven or something like that. I said, how, what are I going to do? So, it was white truffle season in the fall, and I took a white truffle with me and a chicken, and I said, I'm just going to shave the truffles and whatever. So I don't know how it came. So I, I, David looked at the white truffle like that, and I said, David, smell it. It smells like sex. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me. He got it. He smelled it and looked at me and said, where have you been? Because <laughs> TV celebrities weird and like people don't do it right. It's not all just because you're on TV once or twice and it doesn't necessarily equate. Translate to business and restaurant success. To help you. Yeah. I think you have to know what television is all about a little bit and learn about it. You know, Television is such short moments, you know, mm. for cooking. You know, if you have three, four minutes, one minute to you, the, the introduction, this and that, and then you have three minutes to cook. So it's about the personality more than about the dish. Mm. You know, you have a dish already ready, maybe there anyway. So you go through a few steps and you saute it, make a little smoke, a little fire. Yeah. But at the end, it's not a lecture about cooking. It's the personality and have fun. You definitely remember the people because I, I I wanted to make sure we started this off with that is growing up for me, I the two first food personalities that I took for granted and now I, you know, you love them is Wolfgang Puck and I remember Emeril Lagasse. That's what yeah. I watched growing up, you know. I, and for me, I hadn't been to either of your restaurants and it didn't matter almost. It was just, I love the personality. You know, 
You could spot Wolfgang from a mile away. You could spot an emerald from a mile away. I can't taste the food, but I can hear the food yeah. through what they're talking about. And so for me, it was it was interesting to see them have such a... To this day, I'll go watch an emerald show. If I see something on YouTube with you, I will stop and watch it. Yeah. And frankly, I, I'll be honest, I, I hadn't had a, a Wolfgang experience until I had it at LAX. Yeah. Like that's about time you come to Spago. I know you're paid. young, but not that young. <laughs> no, I know radio pays very well. So <laughs> no, no, it's it's definitely on me. I'm gonna get some hate for it. But it was funny because I was at LAX and uh, I was really nervous about a flight. And a friend of mine gave me an edible. Weed is legal in California, y'all. And I, I had it. Disclaimer. It, well, yeah, but this is definitely at the time when it was not legal. Okay, in so it wasn't yeah. legal at the time. But I was nervous. This is an older story. Yeah, it's an older story. And I had. I was much younger, uh, 21. And I, I have this edible, and it, uh, the flight gets delayed, so it kicks in. And then now I'm, I'm tripping out because usually I want to go to sleep. And I, I spot your restaurant and I grab a sandwich. I remember there was smoked salmon on it. There was beautiful, like the red onion was nice. There was capers, there was a sauce on it. I couldn't remember. And as I'm eating it, bite after bite, I turn to the group. I don't know if Izzy, our producer was there. Some, a couple of our friends were there. And the world starts shrinking in my eyes. The, I, I, there's like a pinhole of light and that's all I could see. But I remember savoring every bite of the sandwich. And I remember... I turn over to someone. I'm like, if this is the last bite of food I ever have from Wolfgang at the airport from the Express, can I, get I will some die a happy camper. Yeah. <laughs> can I get some things you were tasting then? <laughs> you got it, man. It's in my pocket. Here you go. Wolfgang, were, were, you, uh, were you media savvy from the beginning? And how nervous were you walking on to shows like Late Night, Good Morning America? I mean, back then, like Good Morning America still is a very big deal. Yeah. Back then, it was the biggest deal because people didn't have the internet. People didn't yeah. have YouTube. When, when people watched TV, they watched it as a nation together. Like yeah. If you were on Good Morning America, that means millions and millions of people are watching you. Give Tell me about like what you were feeling going, going on to those shows early well, on. Like I did Good Morning America every month. So every month I flew for two days to New York to do the show. At the Regency Hotel where I stayed all the time, they knew I used to check in with ice chests. Normally people came with Gucci <laughs> bags and I had my ice chest with food. And I had to tell them, okay, have it, have it out in the morning at six o'clock. And uh, so I can go to the studio, it was, which was on the west side at that time, it wasn't the one on Broadway. And so I, I used to go there. And they had a the producer there of the show. She was very tough in English. She didn't really want me there at the beginning. So she really pushed me hard and said what I do wrong. So every morning when I got there, she showed me the last show and said, see, you didn't look at the camera here. You know what I mean? Oh my God. I felt so self-conscious already going on TV after I said, oh, I have to look at the camera and look in my pen too. So, what, or, or, or look at the host, you know? So I got confused a little bit. But I think it was... Uh, Obviously nerve-wracking. I was nervous, especially like a guy like Johnny Carlson and uh, some of these people made me nervous. And then little by little, less and less and less. And also, I didn't make it easy on me either. Like, I remember one time at Good Morning America, one of the first, I'm going to show people how to make a chocolate souffle. Now, <laughs> you have five thought, yeah. minutes from the beginning <laughs> to the end. <laughs> so I had to put it at the right time in the oven. 
So like 12 minutes before revealing it. So so I said, okay, going to take me five minutes, the show. So I have to put it in 10 minutes or 12 minutes before. So that way by the end, I can bring it out and then it looks good. Now everybody, especially the producer, she was shitting in her pants. She was so nervous. She was, she was so nervous. She said, Wolfgang, if you screw that up, you know, we're going to look so bad and on and on. But so I made it, they melted the chocolate, was melted, put in the egg yolks. The egg whites were half whipped. I told them how to fold it together, put it in a mold, and uh, that I took him out. Perfect two plates. <laughs> oh my God, how did they do that? Did you did you remind that producer that uh, you've been on the line with two hundred covers, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, figuring out a, a you know a twelve a twelve minute a twelve minute timer is probably not the craziest thing you've ever done. Well, to them it was crazy. I and then they made me nervous. You know, oh yeah. Said, I'm what sure. about if it doesn't rise? What about if it's not this? So they made me nervous. I was confident. That's why I wanted to do it and yeah. show people at home you can make a chocolate souffle because it's very few ingredients. All you need is eggs and chocolate, basically. You yeah. know, and the mold where to cook it in. I said even you can cook it in a coffee cup if you want to. You know, so it wasn't something so crazy to me. But for them. Oh my God! They said, "If you screw it up, forget it. You can come back." So, well, and food was different for them. So, I mean, they're not cooking food regularly, and entertainment for yeah. them is different, especially on late night shows. But By- Byron, I'm curious, uh, what is growing up? What is what does your sack lunch look like going to school? Oh my! I, I was like very plain, honestly, growing up. Like I would want whatever he would want to give me. Like the special days was when I took pizza from Spago, mm. and I had it, and I would do. When we started this frozen pizza business, I wasn't even alive yet, but uh, it all started from like a Johnny Carson story, essentially, where he would take pizzas home from Spago and order like 10, 15 of them uh-huh. yeah. and take them home. And he eventually told you, right, that he was freezing them. Yeah. So uh, we started that whole line. And so I would do the same thing. I picked up on that like immediately. I would freeze pizzas and then take them to school and like warm them up in the microwave or something, whatever they would let me use as like a seven-year-old yeah. there. <laughs> Um, but in general, like I was so plain growing up, like mm. I wanted goldfish, I wanted mini Oreos and I wanted a juice box, like in my lunchbox. Like you weren't wanted... having sushi. You no, just knew what you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine the looks from other kids I'd be getting sitting there with like chopsticks on the playground, like, <laughs> eating sushi while everyone's got like a turkey and cheese sandwich in their hands, you know? How important was food in your guys' lives as Byron was younger? Like, what, did you want him to experience these foods that you knew you know byron was such a plain eater even in the morning he (laughs) said oh maybe he had half a bialy and a little cream cheese on it and they half a glass of milk that was it (laughs) is that like being michael jordan and then watching your son or daughter (laughs) pick up like a hockey stick (laughs) (laughs) like did you want him did you want your children to follow in your footsteps I, I obviously wanted them to eat i obviously wanted them to have nutritious food I wanted the kids to eat healthy, but, you know, I couldn't control it. You know, you cannot, uh, if you force feed a duck, it's okay, you get duck liver, but you can't do it with people, you know, so they eat or they don't eat, so it's easy. 
So he, I remember sitting with him in the morning, Byron, eat your whole thing. And he went, oh, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> like I was spending around, like if I was torturing him, you know? Yeah, some some things never change also. <laughs> I'm the exact same in the morning, moaning and groaning, not wanting to eat anything. <laughs> so Byron, where does your, I mean, when, eventually when do you transition into like, yo, you know what? Food is more than just what I'm putting in my mouth, but like there's art to it. There's creativity. I mean, your dad is who he is, but at what point do you actually give a shit? I didn't really understand it. You you know, I spent a lot of time in the restaurants growing up, but I didn't really understand it until I walked into the kitchen and started helping out behind the scenes at Spago. Um, I started out, you know, just helping out with little tasks here and there, doing mise en place and prep and washing dishes. Um, but our chef that works at the Hotel Bel Air right now, um, his name's Hugo Bolanos. And he was kind of one of the first guys to like pull me aside while I was just like washing dishes or peeling potatoes and really help me out and show me the uh, a dish from start to finish the full creation of it and it was one of the oldest dishes uh, one of his recipes the beet napoleon uh-huh. and that was when it like started clicking for me and around that age around 14 15 was that when i really started to appreciate the creative side that went into all of this and how much effort it really took to run not just a restaurant of spago size but any restaurant really I mean, that, it's funny, the 14 and 14, like you guys, this is when you're starting to really kind of experience food around the same time in this capacity. So at that point, when you first started working in it was, uh, Wolfgang, were you you like, my son needs to work, so that's why you were there? Or were you now going from doing chores essentially at the restaurant to now you're curious? I think that's, it it started off more as as work ethic, I think. I think... um I mean, you could you could probably speak more to that, but um, it started off as just learning a business and learning what it takes to to make it in life. Essentially, yeah. he started very young, and I think he wanted something very similar for myself. But ultimately, it spurred on this love for restaurants. Being in it so young, it always felt like this familial place for me, and it was very organic being in there. And that's what kind of started and upstarted my entire passion for restaurants and food, more specifically, was getting that opportunity at such a young age and making some of the best connections still to this day I've ever made. So we're in Los Angeles and LeBron James is here and he has... Is he still? He, he, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. still here. Oh, he's still here. Oh, he's still here. Oh, we just got Anthony oh, Davis. And, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, and his son is like a top college prospect. And I can't imagine the pressure on that son to be the son of LeBron James, Right. And trying to do basketball the way LeBron did basketball. Were you, Byron, were you scared at all to enter the food realm when we're literally sitting with potentially the greatest chef? In the in the history of contemporary food, was that like? Well, I mean, when you put it like that, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that's but like from an outside perspective, I mean, that's 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 true. Um, and so I think that's like, how much did you think about that before going, going into, into food, into cuisine? You know, at at the start, I didn't really think about it at all. It wasn't anything that dawned on me as, as being a, a, a crazy task that I would have to fulfill or, or fill these shoes essentially. Um, but it, it, I understand what you mean, and there's, there, there is that innate pressure that's obviously there, but at the same time, it's alleviated by my dad mainly most of the time in terms of wanting me to be a different chef and me wanting to be a different chef than, than he was and kind of focusing in on techniques and, and types of cuisines that 
aren't necessarily aligned with the exact same things that he grew up learning. And so I think we come from two different sides, which really makes for a better whole at the end of the day of me kind of being on this more modern front and both wanting to learn always. So I finally get the opportunity, you know, to teach him, him some things after 10 years of him teaching me so many things. Yeah, I'm, I'm so curious now too, because I've seen some of the stuff again on your Instagram and it's fun seeing, we were talking earlier about some of the new innovations. What are some things that you're teaching dad at this point? Like, what are some fun like things that you're bringing to the table on that? I think a lot of a lot of it revolves around more gastronomy and the techno technological influence that's come mm. into food nowadays. Um, there's this interesting balance between food of of the the tradition versus the innovation that's going on right now, and the happy merriment I think is is something that not only my dad loves but I love as well. Like a, a steak, for instance, we figured out how to cook that like hundreds of years ago. My job isn't to mess with that. My job is to figure out new and interesting methods to kind of highlight this produce and the ingredients in the best way possible. Sometimes that might be the traditional method. Sometimes that might be something more innovative, like using a centrifuge or something crazy you might find in a hospital, you know? Yeah. I mean, you have like a ton, we're in your guys's studio and there's a ton of like crazy equipment that I don't know. I mean, I've seen them in a lab. It looks like, but yeah. what, like, <laughs> so what's, what's something recently that you're like, oh shit, I'm, I might be onto something. Maybe we can just from tinkering around that this could be on a restaurant menu. Um, well, that's, that's the goal in this kitchen ultimately is always trying to make something that can fit in, in one of our restaurants. Um, I love using this new technology and like one of the things making homemade cocktails, let's say for instance, mm. if you want to make a pineapple tequila and we want to do that in house, it's very hard to do. And it's going to take months in order to infuse that pineapple into the tequila behind you guys, that little, like almost spaceman box. I know the people listening can't see it right yeah, but now. Spaceman but box is good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah that's a good description. <laughs> so it's called a sonic emulsifier and it mixes based on sound waves. So it uses sound waves to mix ingredients together. For instance, oil and water don't mix right. With that machine, I can get them to emulsify into each other. No way. Yeah, it's crazy. But for like a pineapple tequila, if we wanted to make uh, cocktails in-house at Spago or something like that, I could do that in a matter of hours using that machine rather than waiting months for that pineapple to really get all its flavor into the tequila. Wow. How do you balance some of these newer ideas with some of the tradition at the restaurants that you guys have? Is it a matter of this is cool, let's put it on? Is it a matter of do you have to open up a new concept that's built around weird and wacky and new and, and stuff like that? Or has there been enough of a tradition in the Wolfgang properties that it's like, no, they expect a little new here with a little bit of the tradition? Yeah, I think, I think one of the biggest MOs of my father is change and evolution. And you don't necessarily have to open up a new concept just to do something new and interesting. I think for something like Spago, which has been around for 37 years, we're constantly reinventing the menu. We just did a complete change to the lunch menu. And just because the food is different, that doesn't necessarily mean the concept has to change too. We're still serving quality ingredients with very interesting techniques. But as time goes on, we get more and more techniques allotted to us as chefs. So we're just infusing that into what the culture of Spago or Cut or Chinois already is. Wolfgang, uh, I, I, I was curious about, there's obviously a great father-son culinary relationship here. Um, and earlier you had talked about, but even before opening Spago, that was a on the fly 
made that menu and had success. Is there a grand handing of the crown situation with like <laughs> you and your son? Or are you kind of just living day by day, seeing where it goes, see where it takes you? Because there's obviously not only a legacy here, but you're also talking about a giant business operation. Um, and so in a lot of familial instances, you'll you'll see that handing, you know, handing over the reins per se. Is that something you've thought about? Is there a plan in place or is it day by day? I think there is a plan in place in my head for sure. Did I articulate it? Did I write out papers or anything? <laughs> Not yet because I still feel uh, I'm still capable of doing what I do yeah. and I still have the passion for it to do what I do and I don't mind the trouble and everything. But I think for me it's certainly great to see to have my son grow into the business too. Now he still has a lot to learn. He's still very young. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's like having a Formula One car. And, you know, if you don't even drive a regular car, you're not going to give somebody a Formula One car. Yeah. So you have to learn how to do the uh, simpler things, how to, to learn how to manage a business and everything. I think that's really just as important as the cooking. Now, it would be great if everything goes well and we can have a family business where Byron takes over one day and then I come and have lunch with him uh, <laughs> and uh, he tells me the new stories. I think, ideally speaking, if I would make a movie, that's how I see it coming. I think uh, for right now, I'm still young and he's too young. So, <laughs> <laughs> what Are you guys seeing anything? Uh, you guys are both obviously at the forefront seeing some trends. Is there anything that you like and some stuff that you don't like that you've seen? Whether it's uh, media, me food, media, within food, the restaurant, something that you tried at your restaurant and you didn't like it, or something you saw at another restaurant, like a rainbow thing. Like, how do you feel about some of these trends you're seeing? I think I, I'm super into technology, and one of the things for me technologically that's kind of even in the home kitchen at this point and a lot at that is is sous vide mm. and I think sous vide is great, but I think it takes away a lot from cooking at the same time. Um, as much as you want to get like almost a perfect steak with that perfect sear, there's there's no substitute for fire at the mm. end of the day. Um, Francis Malman, for instance, an amazing chef down in in Argentina, right? I'm not. Yeah. I'm, yeah okay. Good. <laughs> I just I, <laughs> I'm just checking all the boxes here, making sure with him. Okay. Um, well, he's everywhere in the world. He's yeah. a world traveler. So. It's okay. So, but yeah, there's that's something he speaks to all the time. So I think. Those influences are great, but at the same time, that's not something I normally cook with. So sous vide at a restaurant is not something you guys would. Uh, it it depends. Like to utilize. I, I've definitely used it before cooking dishes at our test kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, I've done it with a couple seafood things, like making scallop noodles, for instance. So pounding pounded out scallops very thin and sous vide them in a bag, so I could then cut them into thin mm. strips of noodles. Yeah. So there's certain techniques where it's it's honestly a, nece a necessity if it's a dish I want to produce. But I try and stay, with that being said, I try and stay away from it quite often. What's some shit that hasn't made the menu that you were almost like, you, yo, let's not talk about this again. Like what what's something you worked on in the kitchen and you, you know, you have smoked salmon on a pizza, but what didn't make it on a pizza? Like what turned out poorly? Yeah, what, what was not good? I tried to make a uh, sushi ice cream one time Ooh, like talk to like me. wrap water i had a i had watermelon wrapped in matcha ice cream matched wrapped in waffle cone wrapped in chocolate hmm. and i was all trying to do it like you would make a like a terrine like a foie gras yeah. terrine or something so i was like rolling it together with in saran wrap and stuff 
And I tried it for like five days straight. Can I go to the toilet? (laughs) (laughs) You have to experiment, right? And I think the reason why Eli asked that question too is because I think it's very easy to talk about success and it's not easy to talk about the amount of trials that it took to even get you in the right position to capitalize on the timing of success. And so that's, we definitely tend to ask those types of questions a decent amount. But Wolfgang, I, I wanted to switch to a, a, a subject real quick because uh, California cuisine is is a thing now. People at least somewhat understand it from um, indigenous ingredients to the coastal provisions to et cetera, et cetera. They didn't understand it when you were when you were creating food, especially um, in the early '80s. But I was curious about what what the term California cuisine means to you, and then on top of that, what are your favorite contributions toward it? Well, I when I opened Spargo, I looked at where we are. We are in California. We are very lucky, you know, for food. I mean, it's a chef's dream. Uh, to be in California, you know, if you love wine, you might move to Napa or to Bordeaux or somewhere like that, you know, but for cooking, I think California is the best place. Whatever we have left over, we might send to the chefs in New York, but we get the, <laughs> I love this West Coast, yeah, we, I love it. we get the first pick here. So that's already a, a great thing. So I think to me, when I started Spargo and I wrote on in California cuisine, nobody knew what that was. It was French cuisine, Chinese cuisine, Italian, whatever, whatever, but no California. So I said, you know what? We use local ingredients. And then instead of having one culture, like France is basically one culture or Italy is one culture, different shades of cultures maybe. And then we have so many different cultures here. So I said, why not borrow some ideas from the Japanese, from the Chinese, and from the Italians or the French, whatever it is, and mix them together. America is a big melting pot. Los Angeles for sure is a big melting pot. So I said, you know, our cooking, our restaurant should be a reflection of Los Angeles, of the melting pot, what Los Angeles is. I mean, that's impressive because, again, for the longevity over those decades, what you're talking about isn't easy. And I mean that like on the media side too, the t- talking about uh, kind of respecting other cultures. How did you respect other cultures for so long without messing up? Well, you know, they, a few of them wrote me nasty notes and said, why you're messing up our cuisine? You're not Chinese or you're yeah, not this. Yeah. I remember when I opened Chinois in Santa Monica yeah, yeah. in 1983. I got a letter from a Chinese restaurant owner. So he came to the restaurant and probably saw the restaurant packed and he probably was not as busy. And, you know, I wrote on the menu uh, Shanghai Lobster. I wrote on the menu uh, Mongolian Lamb chop. So I wanted to give them a sense of place in China. Yeah. But the lamb chops were marinated in a uh, little soy sauce with ginger and honey and a little garlic uh, and chili flakes. And then I grilled them and served them with the mint cilantro vinaigrette with rice wine in it. Again, uh, uh, cashew pureed in it and made like a vinaigrette. It tasted delicious. The same thing with duck. You know, we made a baking duck. I said, I don't want to serve it with hoisin sauce out of a can. I'm going to make my own plum sauce. Mm. So oh, when man. in the fall, the elephant heart plums, which are these deep red mm-hmm. plums were in season, I bought as much as I could, pureed them, 
and then put they give it to my produce company and they put the, all these uh, buckets in the freezer. So that way, in January, I just took out the buckets or in February, so I had them for the whole year. I had them all ready and it didn't make it uh, worse tasting. It tasted just the same. So uh, I think, but... Some of the Chinese people were offended by it. They sent me nasty notes. How dare I tinker around with their cooking style? I don't even know what Chinese food is. I don't know the history. I said, you know, I'm not a historian. I like to create. I like to make things up in my mind. Before opening Chinois, I could have gone to Hong Kong or somewhere and learned in a, in a Chinese restaurant about certain dishes. But I didn't do that on purpose. Why? Because I said, you know, I don't want to imitate another Chinese restaurant. Mm. I want to have my own creation. What I think in my head should be a Chinese restaurant. Now, is it all Chinese or whatever? No. But, you know, the world has changed. We're all a mixture of different kind of cultures and people. So why not fusion them somehow together in, in the kitchen too? With multiple successful restaurants, when did you start thinking about creating the the casual brand that Eli and I really grew up with and that's how we experienced your food right we experienced it in the grocery store yeah. and we experienced it in casual settings um you really you know. got to come to the restaurant no and, oh, we're coming no, and, I, and, I, and, and, and I've been to cut and I've been to different places but I'm just saying that like for a, a lot of our listeners who may or may not have ever been to a fine dining restaurant is they've experienced you through what what they the seen? Airport, yeah, yeah, sure. and so I think what what was the what was kind of the strategy? And there are obviously very different things from being in casual settings and also having pizzas in 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 a grocery aisle. Tell us about how those things started to come about and why you were excited for them. Well, I think the first thing, the first casual restaurant actually was up at Universal City Walk when they built City Walk. At that time, Lou Wasserman, who was like one of the power guys who used to run uh, MCA Universal. And he used to be a very good customer of Spago. And he wanted that Spago up there, so that way he could go for lunch. So I tried to talk him out. I said, you can't do that. He insisted, you have to open a restaurant. I said, you know, Lou, I'm going to open one, but I'm going to open just with simpler food, not expensive ingredients, and uh, maybe not smoked salmon pizzas, and uh, maybe not a... Sonoma lamb chops or get fresh fish and things like that from the market. So I said, okay, we're going to open some kind of a cafe. And then uh, we signed a deal with him. He said, okay, I know if you're going to do it, uh, I know it's going to taste good. And then we opened that, I think, in the early 90s or whenever it was. And uh, I think it became very successful. Then the Disney people came along and says, well, how come we don't have one Wolfgang Park uh, <laughs> restaurant in our theme park? Yeah. So then we opened down in Orlando and we just opened a new Wolfgang Park uh, bar and grill in Orlando at, at Disney Springs. And then other people in the airports, I remember the mayor of Chicago saw it in Disney and said, how come we don't have one like that? So yeah. then we put one like that in the airport in Chicago. So it came really more from people asking us, mm -hmm. mm. I didn't go to this airport managers conventions or anything. <laughs> franchise, you know, yeah, yeah, franchise yeah, yeah. conventions and everything. I just waited until somebody came along and says, you know, we would like a restaurant like that uh, in our airport. Once they saw our first ones at LAX and then Chicago. 
And I remember even with Spargo, it was the same saying. Uh, six months into opening Spargo, these people from Japan came and says, oh, we love your restaurant. We have to open one in Tokyo. I said, you know, I cannot even run one restaurant the way it should be run. Forget about going uh, 10 hours flight away, you know, into Tokyo. And I don't speak the language and everything. They came back three months later with an exact plan of a wow. restaurant, the same layout of the kitchen. And they basically said, you know, are we going to open Spargo with you or without you? So I said, okay, open it with me. <laughs> <laughs> and is that, is that, are those the types of situations where, uh, why you have like international fine dining restaurants or people experiencing it here and wanting to take a piece of that back home? Yeah, yeah. People know now in the hotel industry, you know, there are great hoteliers out there. A lot of them went to the school where Byron went to Cornell, but they are not specialized in food. For them, food is an accessory. They don't really want to bother of it. You don't, you're not going to make as much money with the room. You know, if you sell a room for $700, it costs you maybe $200 altogether, you know. But if you uh, have food, you have the labor cost, the food cost, yeah. and everything is extremely... It's a harder dollar. Yeah, it's very difficult to make a profit. But they, a lot of them didn't want to really run a restaurant. And so we started out with the first restaurant like in Spago, Maui. We took over the Four Seasons at the Four Seasons Hotel in Vailea. It's an amazing hotel. And they were running the restaurant. So then finally they got tired of losing money and they came to me and said, why not opening a Spago there? So I said, okay. Then when we opened up, I looked at their business. They did like 1.7 million. We now do 7 million in the same space. Wow. So I remember the first year we, we opened up, I think, in November, which is already hard enough. And then I came back to L.A. And then I went to back before the holiday, before Christmas. And I remember one of our good customers from Spargo, I walked in and, you know, it was in early evening. And uh, he, I said, hi, John. And he said, where is my fucking food? <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at him and I was like, uh, what? What a kind of a greeting. <laughs> and I went into the kitchen. They have orders lined up. Oh, my God, like 30 tables. The manager took, like, everybody at the same time. And we had all families come for the holidays. It was crazy. And the chef we had there, that was a very good cook, but very, very calm and very quiet. So there was no urgency with it. So I had to go in and push them and said, Keep on going, keep on going, pick up, send this to this table, send this to that table. But so you, you came back after a work. I mean, now, did you feel at that moment, You am I spreading myself too thin? Am I going to be able to keep up the brand quality that I want when I'm not well, in every one of these spots? I knew we could make good food. So now we just had to engineer it and get enough staff to do that. Because like when the Four Seasons was running it, if they did 80 dinners, it was a lot. It was like the big night of the year for them. We started out on our slowest day. We did maybe 120 when we started. Jeez. And then on the busy day, they took like 280, 300 reservations. It was yeah. totally crazy. So it was hard because I didn't have, I didn't gear up for that many people. I said, okay, we might do double of what the fourth season does. Maybe instead of doing 
you know, 60, 70, we do 150, 160,000 a, a, a year, a month. Yeah. So it was crazy then how busy it got. I mean, they did 1.7 million, so the whole year, you know, so. That's insane. I know we talked to a decent amount of chefs on the show, and pretty much every chef I've ever talked to needs two line cooks yesterday. Like, there, I think there's a combination of... Um, a new generation that is um, a bit less inclined to work with their hands in kind of like the digital I revolution. Think talk to Byron. Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> I can't explain but, you that. <laughs> but but I, I'm curious about how you guys recruit and retain talent on such a like high level with res- restaurants of all different calibers across across the world. Um, because everyone I know is having staff shortages. So how does someone with um, you know, a big restaurant group. What, what do you guys do to meet those challenges um, with finding the right people? I, I mean, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't hard. It's it's definitely really difficult to find very great and really passionate cooks in the kitchen. That being said, I think we've had some people that have been with us for 37 years at this point, even more, some less. There's whenever we have chef meetings in this office here, like there's over a hundred years of cooking experience easy at that table, which is amazing. So we have such amazing talent that's been with us for so long that have helped me grow as a chef, whether it's my father or other chefs that have been around for 20 plus years. Um, And I think that's one of the biggest draws to the Wolfgang Puck casual dining and fine dining is that this plethora of creativity and amazing talent helps spur these younger guys like myself or other chefs that do want to work with their hands and get off their phone for a solid 12-hour shift and really put in some quality creative creative work at the end of the day. Is being a chef now cooler than it's ever been or is it? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think you can speak more to what it used to be like, definitely. But I think it it became something out of nowhere that you could become a celebrity chef when nothing like that existed before. It was much more of a, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was much more of like almost like a blue collar job where you would just be, you know, pushing out food as much as possible, trying to feed as many people as possible. And only in this more modern world with TV and media available to us has it really grown into something. Because chefs are rock stars now. I mean, but going around when you were younger, maybe even in LA. It was the opposite. When I came to LA, I still remember, I'm a big fan of auto racing. Uh So I went, uh, Nicky Lauda, who is a famous Austrian race car driver, he just passed away this spring. And he came and through a friend we met and we hung out for a few days. He was training here and everything. And then... Uh, I think Sunday after the race, we went to this club called the Candy Store right here in Beverly Hills. And I went and asked a girl to dance. I mean, I was 24, 25 years old. Let's go. Yeah, I said, let's go. It was a (laughs) slow dance. I invited her to dance. And then she asked me, so what do you do? I said, I'm a cook. And she said, a cook? The song was over. She because <laughs> she didn't really have a point of reference. Yeah, yeah. you know so the Wolf Gangs didn't exist. So, so yet. I don't want to hang out with a cook today. It's all different. So uh, when I'm in Vegas and I'm and I'm playing poker, or I'm playing craps. There's typically a ratio of how many chips you need to have to even give yourself a chance to win. Right? It might be 50x. It might be more. Whatever the blinds or the minimum bet is. You've said in previous uh, interviews that 
restaurants don't even get enough time to see if they can build a clientele now. With all your experience, how long do you need to last as a restaurant to see if you can actually make it? And there's a lot of restaurateurs that listen to this show and how much should they be planning for, um, you know, if that's one year, two year, three years or however, um, in order to really try and make it in, in the restaurant business? Uh, it's really like Tetera. You know what? You can be great and have a show going, but if you screw up too many times, the writers will write about it and said, I'm not going to see this show anymore. So every day is opening day. Every day the curtain goes up and it's opening. So you better be on your best. And then you might be able to be successful in the long run. Now also you can be your best, but after a while it gets boring. So you have to change. And I think uh, for me, the most important part is how we don't annoy the old customers who are with us for 35 years and how can we get new customers. So to keep a, an environment where there is part tradition and part innovation, where we can do both and marry them together, I think that's one of the reasons maybe why we are for so many years in business. I mean, 38 years, it's yeah. truly a long time and very few restaurants last a year, two years, three years. And one of the greatest thing is like at Spargo, our best year was last year. Wow. Really? Yeah. So if you guys were to direct our audience to a single dish at a single restaurant of what they should try, um, what should we eat? And I'd love for you to both answer that question if you could. Like, what, what should someone like me go yeah. eat for the first time <laughs> in your entire portfolio? What should I have? Per, per your faded airport adventures <laughs> from earlier, I would definitely recommend the smoked salmon pizza from Spago, Beverly Hills. So take okay. a trip over to Spago, lunch during the day on the patio. It couldn't yes. be more beautiful out right now. Yes. But that smoked salmon pizza, I've actually had like more than 2,500 slices of that pizza in my lifetime. Every time I go to that restaurant, I'll always get that without a doubt. It's pizza dough, red onion, dill cream, smoked salmon, and uh, salmon caviar, salmon roe. And it's, I mean, it's, it's classic. It's one of the pizzas and menu items that has been around the longest. And I think it gives you a good idea of how, where Wolfgang Puck as a company was and is today, whether it was innovating back then with pizzas or how we do it um, differently in this day and age as well. I love it. Wolf? Wolfgang? Well, I think variety is the spice of life mm -hmm. why choose one <laughs> okay You're right hit, yeah, hit, I, me. hit me with all of them I, hit me with all of them i already have one wife that's already <laughs> one so you can have five of them <laughs> so order the whole menu. unless I, I move to a different country maybe but who who on the other hand wants to have five wives i don't know even why you know one is already a lot of work but I think I will go and tell you, go to a restaurant, Spago or Cut or the Belle Hotel if you're in LA or Cut in New York. Ask who is the chef, call the chef and says, cook for me. Ooh. Ooh. And, and says, you know, power move. I have $20 to spend <laughs> or $200 to spend. <laughs> the first one was right. Yeah. <laughs> and tell them Wolfgang told you to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> tell them Wolfgang sent me to come to your restaurant and make me something special. I have a special date. I want to impress her. 
I like it. I'm going to cut this part of the podcast <laughs> just, and, and just walk keep it on your phone. restaurant <laughs> in the country. Yeah, Wolf, Wolf sent me here. I'm just here checking up. Yeah, I'll just take the whole menu, please. Thank you. Uh-huh. You guys, thank you so much for your yeah, time thank you guys. and spending this much time with us and the fatties at home. Uh, guys, go to a Wolfgang restaurant. Go follow them both on Instagram. Byron's going to put up some fire. Yeah, I got you guys. Soon. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, More content, TBA. Any last words? Well, I think I've, uh, I enjoyed the talk with you guys. Even you're so young that you actually knew when everything started. And I think, you know, for me, the food business, the restaurant business is the best business. And actually what we really aim to is give every customer a great experience. You know, you don't go just to a restaurant to eat one dish. You want to have an experience. Mm-hmm. And I think we do that pretty well. And that's one of the reasons we are in business for so long. Boom. Yeah. I mean, to talk about something you're passionate about, to reiterate a little bit what you said, is is always great. And to speak with other people that are passionate about it as well is even better. So thank you guys for having both of us. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye.